Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. The signs are all there. Climate change is having a direct and brutal impact on people's lives. The sheer scale and ferocity of the forest fires are a testament to that fact. Yesterday, I saw a headline that read, Parliament fiddles while Canada burns, an apt description of what we have seen from Liberals and Conservatives. As parliamentarians, we owe it to Canadians to meet this moment with the seriousness that it deserves. Mr. Speaker, we must do better. Hey, that is quite something, Aaron. Um, that story that was quoted there, that's your story. It's its a, obviously had a real impact in all my years in Parliament Hill. I didn't have a story that was quoted on the floor of the House of Commons, and, and you have. What's going on there? Yeah, that's uh, Alistair McGregor, an NDP MP, essentially reading the headline and a, and a piece of, of what I wrote. You know, it's always a bit jarring to hear your own words read back to you. But uh, I guess, you know, if, if the point of that piece was that Parliament wasn't wasn't paying enough attention to something, it's nice to know Parliament was listening to me. Okay, well, I, maybe I should say, hi, Aaron Wary, properly. Hi, Aaron Wary. <laughs> Hey, Laura Lynch. <laughs> I'm going to loop everyone in on who you are here. Aaron Wary is a senior writer with the CBC. He's a longtime parliamentary reporter, and he's joined me. This is Friday that we're talking, and we are talking about the smoke and the wildfires. As Aaron said, I am Laura Lynch. You're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Aaron, you're going to help us kick things off this week talking about how the smoke and wildfires have turned life upside down for so many Canadians. Welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Can you describe the scene outside when you wrote that analysis piece, Parliament Fiddles While Canada Burns? Look, I I think a lot of people in other places in Canada are probably now familiar with this, but this is really a first for Ottawa, at least in the time that I've lived here. It was smoky. The air was tough to breathe. People were wearing masks outside. Kids were being kept in at recess. You know, the weather reports didn't say cloudy or rainy or sunny. They said smoky. And that is, uh, I think, a jarring experience to go through for the first time, I'll say personally. And it was pretty surreal and a touch dystopian, I think, to see sort of the nation's capital and parliament sort of cast in that haze. Were were people around the city talking to each other? Was it the topic of conversation among people who are living in Ottawa? Yeah, it, it dominated everything around Parliament Hill, you couldn't not talk about it. It was it, it reminded me a bit of the pandemic, where there was just something so much bigger than everything going on, and you were all sharing this experience. And it was scary and strange and hard to kind of wrap your mind around. And yet. And yet. <laughs> what, have you been obs- what were you observing inside Parliament over the past few weeks that, that led you to write this piece? Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that was hard to square was... You know, you would be outside in this air, in this smoke, and then the debate inside Parliament was about other things. And when it was about climate policy, in a way, it was about whether or not climate policy should be scaled back. And 
you know, look, the parliament isn't always connected to to reality on the best of days. But usually when there is some kind of crisis or disaster or some kind of major issue, you know, like the pandemic, it dominates everything. It takes over the debate. And in this case, it took several days for that to really happen. By the end of the week, parliament had kind of come around to say, oh, you know, we should be talking about this. But it took a while, and it was very surreal to watch Parliament sort of in this almost literal bubble, imagining that what was going on outside wasn't happening. Did, I'm just curious, did it, did it even smell smoky inside Parliament? I mean, it, it did. If you look at, you know, MPs were standing up in the House of Commons and saying, you know, we can feel the smoke that that is out there. It's It's not, you know, we can't keep it out. And... You know, there was uh, one moment a colleague caught of, of, I think it was the finance minister at a committee coughing at one point and saying it was because of the smoke. So it wasn't, you know, you know, I think every MP knew it was happening, but for whatever reason, it wasn't making it onto the floor of the House of Commons. Now, I, I know you said that, that there are times when Parliament doesn't seem to be connected to reality, but, but this seems particularly, um, particularly disjointed or disconnected and they're not talking about climate change. Why is that happening? So I think it's sort of a confluence of a few things. One is that I don't know that we've figured out within the federal political conversation how to talk about this, how to talk about wildfires and preparedness and who's responsible and what to do about it. But I think on a larger scale, the debate on climate policy in this country has kind of gotten stuck in a bit of a rut. You know, if you go back to 2007, 2008, when former liberal leader Stephen Dion first proposed a carbon tax, that sort of set the frame that, that Canadian politics hasn't quite moved on from, and that is, are carbon taxes good or bad? And by all means, that's a debate worth having. But it hasn't evolved yet to a point where there is broad consensus on even just sort of the basic parameters of what to do about climate change, how much to do about climate change, there's sort of a missing agreement, I guess, that makes it hard for the conversation to move forward. And on a, on a very practical political basis, you know, the conservatives have changed leaders. They've taken the climate plan that they had in the last election and essentially set it aside. And so there's not even a clash of competing plans about how to deal with climate change. And so it's sort of stuck. And there's not really... Uh, room for a debate. And then that means that when something like this happens, instead of the official opposition, as it naturally would, sort of challenging the government and saying, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing more? I think there's a defensiveness of saying, well, we don't have a plan yet. We know that the government's going to come back and say that their plan is stronger than ours. And so then essentially what happens is the whole conversation kind of gets set aside. Yeah, there's another part of this, that's um, climate change being talked about in isolation when it is talked about from other big topics like healthcare and the economy, which on our program, we've often tied those things together. And I'm wondering if you can address what you think the costs and consequences of keeping climate in a sort of a silo are. I think in the public and in, and in politics, the leap hasn't yet been made to, oh, this is an issue that is here, it's with us, it's not going away, and it's going to change many, many things, and therefore it needs to be a central issue for many, many things. And I don't 
think that politicians have yet made that leap to realizing it needs to be kind of framed in that way. So then what do you say to people who are impatient for faster political action on climate? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's you don't want to tell people to be patient. But uh, I guess I would say that these things never move as fast as the most passionate advocates wish they would. Though I, I think you always have to caution against the idea that there's going to be one big breakthrough or one big uh, storm or event or disaster that is going to change the conversation forever and change the politics of it forever. I think it is important to remember that politicians are ultimately simple creatures. They respond to incentives. And if the public is worried about something, if the public is concerned about something, politicians will hear it and they will realize they need to do something about that, either to uh, either to sort of keep from losing votes or because they want to win votes. And I think that, you know, the research on whether extreme weather impacts public opinion is pretty mixed. But I, I have to believe that as more people experience what happened in Ottawa this week, uh, as, as, as these events become more commonplace, there's going to be more demands that, that there be some kind of political response to it. It's not necessarily going to, to lead to 100 climate bills being passed next week. But I think gradually it is just going to become unavoidable for politicians. And I wouldn't say there is any kind of silver lining to what happened in Ottawa this week and is, is happening across you know, eastern North America. But I do suspect that it will turn some minds that much sharper to climate change. Aaron Wary, CBC Ottawa, I wish you clearer skies <laughs> in the days ahead. And thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. And just so you know, you can read Aaron's analysis at cbcnews.ca or on the CBC News app. And by the way, we did request an interview with the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Guilbeault, for this week's show. He wasn't available, but we are hoping to hear from him or a member of the government soon. Canada's wildfires are getting attention in the U.S. I can't breathe. My throat is just a mess. My chest is burning up and now my lungs are in distress. Shouldn't we blame the imbeciles ignoring climate change? Oh, who's to blame for making the sky so strange? I know. Blame Canada. Blame Canada. It seems our friends up in Quebec have made Manhattan a stinking wreck. Blame Canada. Shame on Canada for the fog. The smog, the haze from the blaze, the Ontario smoke that's making this choke. We must escape, but folks, fear not. Get off the streets and see some like it. Well, that was some stirring music. That was award-winning composer Mark Shaman with an update to the song Blame Canada that he posted on Instagram. He co-wrote the original for the cartoon South Park along with Trey Parker. News outlets in the U.S. have been full of headlines about the smoke from forest fires burning in Canada. Mark spoke to CBC Ottawa Morning's Robin Bresnahan about trying to be lighthearted about a serious subject and what he really thinks about climate change. We're seeing how weather is, is changing and getting worse and worse, and it's scary. Uh, I mean, if I try to put a silver lining on it, it's like, well, at least we have a front seat to the end of the world. But I cannot believe that uh, people are just ignoring what we have done to this earth. And the earth will survive, but will we? I don't know. 
okay if you're feeling frustrated or cynical about our climate future, there's someone I want you to meet. Hi, Ashwarya. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Great, how are you? Good. I hear you had to rush over from school. <laughs> I did, but that's all right. <laughs> You're always so busy. Yeah, well, grade 12, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, grade 12, and it is graduation season. This has been a super busy week for you. You had your high school prom and then your senior trip. How did everything go? It was amazing, yeah. I think prom is something that we look forward to for like four years, right? <laughs> and then it's finally here. But um, yeah, especially after COVID, after those two years of COVID, this was such a special experience for sure. And the senior trip, I remember hugging all my friends at the end of the trip. But there is a, a bit of a pall hanging oh, over yeah. the festivities in so some parts away. of the country, including southern Ontario, where Aishwarya lives. Was it smoky where you went? Um, not too smoky, I'll be very honest. But I do remember having a conversation with my friend on the second day of the trip. And she was looking at her phone and she went, oh my gosh, look at that air. Look, it says high risk. And we've been in that air this entire time. And I remember going up to her and being like, that's crazy. You know, because we hear about all these stories of climate change, forest fires and how it affects the air and how it affects our health. But I feel like the moment it hits us and we're the ones being affected, it feels even more real. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Uh, I, I think right now we should just pause for a second and let listeners know who you are. So can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Aishwarya Puthur. I am in grade 12. I go to Blueville Collegiate Institute and I'm a climate justice organizer or a climate activist. I work for several organizations, um, worked for several different campaigns, international and national campaigns in the past that focus on trying to get banks to divest from fossil fuels, targeting fossil fuel companies and making them understand that what they're doing for our planet is not right. And then campaigns focused on climate education and trying to ensure that every single young person in this world today knows what's happening to our planet, um, our future and our present. And yeah, I'm so grateful to be sitting here today talking about what I'm so passionate about and what I hope to pursue in the future. Now, listeners, you might be forgiven if you think that Ashwarya is, I don't know, 30, 35 years old, given that resume. Um, but uh, maybe you could tell everybody just how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm actually 17 years old and um, I'm going to be turning 18 on June 20th, actually. So, Oh, happy exciting. birthday coming up and you're graduating from high school. And listeners, we're going to be talking to Ashwarya regularly over the next few months. She's our new columnist bringing us stories of the youth climate movement in Canada. So to start out, let's get to know her. The whole reason I be even became involved in climate activism is because I was not properly ever taught about climate change. Um, the first time I heard the words global warming were in grade six in uh, science class. And I remember them teaching us the three R's, reduce, reuse and recycle. And then that was it. It was one small paragraph in a, what, 200 page <laughs> science textbook. And the next time I ever was even taught about climate change was in grade 10 science class and we had an assignment on uh, the climate crisis which at least that was there you know at least that was something but yeah after that 
nothing. I never ever had a full-on lesson about climate change. And so I had to learn about the climate crisis through articles. I had to learn about the climate crisis through research, through curiosity and wonder that quickly turned into fear, that quickly turned into anxiety, that quickly turned into passion and the drive that allows me to do the work that I do today. So that's why I do the work now, because I don't think that any child should ever have to learn about something that's so impending. Yeah, there is something big and serious happening, honey. No one told you about it, but here you go. Here's an article about it. Um, And I don't think any child should ever have to learn through it that way. So that's why I do the climate education work that I do today. And you went from researching to actively getting involved uh, during the early days of the pandemic. What was that like? Yeah, it was actually a very interesting experience because after talking to other activists, I realized it's not the normal experience. (laughs) So I got involved with climate activism in the fall of 2019. And it was not with bigger organizations. It was just more on a smaller scale. We started an eco club at our school. And after that, once the pandemic hit, I remember, you know, they said that, oh, you're going to go on March break for two weeks. And the March break turned into two years. But (laughs) right when the March break hit, I decided oh, you you know what, let me expand the work that I'm doing from just my school and my local community because that's what I was doing at the time. And so I joined this organization called Fridays for Future Digital, right? Fridays for Future Digital was started by these two incredible um, Asian American activists from the U.S., um, Iris Sen and George Zhang. And they started this platform as a way for people who live in places where they cannot protest on the streets, whether it be due to political restrictions or just safety in general, or whether it even be something that's more on a family basis, right? Like they're, they're not allowed to go out on the streets. Maybe their parents are not okay with it. So this was a way for young adults to show their support for the climate activist movement and also campaigns across the world. And, so, in, and in this case, it was the perfect thing for a pandemic, right? Exactly. And so it, they started it out earlier before the pandemic. Obviously, they didn't know the pandemic was going to hit. But as soon as the pandemic hit, Fridays for Future Digital was a huge hit, right? And everyone um, joined that organization. We were able to really help out a huge number of campaigns across the world. And that's making making your voices heard online. Exactly. So as young people, and mind you, the people in this uh, Fridays for Future Digital are all high schoolers. So you're talking like 14-year-olds to we had some people in like their early 20s as well. But most of them were 14, 15, 16. I joined when I was uh, 14 myself. And we ended up starting massive protests across the world, peaceful protests. And some of them were in person, but a lot of them were obviously online. And so when people think online protests, they're like, what does that mean? Well, that looks like email storms that looks like calling your officials, calling your MPs, your representatives. It looks like targeting the people in power as a 15-year-old. That really, really grounded myself and the rest of our team in the belief that young people are able to do the work that people tell us you're too young to do. Yeah. But in case listeners are wondering, this isn't your first time on What on Earth. We spoke with you a couple of years ago about your work advocating for climate education in school, something else you did. More recently, as you mentioned earlier, you've been involved in the group Banking on a Better Future. Um, What drew you to work on the issue of banks and fossil fuel investment? 
For me, actually, I think it was the fact that I did not know that the big five banks of Canada invest so much into fossil fuel companies, and we're talking in the billions, right? It was an inherent disconnect um, and complete lack of knowledge and financial literacy on my part that drew me towards this work. Um, if you can't tell, I have a little trend. When I don't know something, I go I go after it, <laughs> and I want to learn about it. <laughs> and I, and th- that, that's just who I am. That's what I do. And so for me, when I got to know about this, I was like, wow, I want to be a part of this now, right? You did that by designing Banking on a Better Future workshops for high school students. Exactly. So what, what is the goal of those? So for those workshops, what we do is essentially we go around to high schoolers, eco clubs, and we educate them on how banks work, first of all, and their connection to the climate crisis that banks have, which is banks investing the money that you put into them, right? Uh, Pooling it all up and then lending it out to these big fossil fuel corporations for their projects. Okay. All right. See, this is just, you've got so much going on and and you are about to graduate. Congratulations. So what are your post-secondary plans? I'm actually going off to the University of British Columbia, so I'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, you're coming our way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. And what are you going to study? Um, So I'm doing a dual degree. It's international relations with a master's in management. Ultimately, the goal is I do want to work in policy, right? In -hmm. the policy sphere, um, maybe policy negotiations. Uh, I went to a United Nations conference in December, and I remember sitting in those policy rooms and being like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. (laughs) So (laughs) that's why I'm going down this path. That sounds like your typical passion. Yes. <laughs> so, but then you, so you've got university. First year university is a big deal. It's a lot of adjustments mm-hmm. and being away from family. But uh, are you planning to keep up with your climate action while you're starting at school? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are some incredible local climate groups down in Vancouver. So I'm so excited to just go and join them. Obviously, you know. We need to chill a little so we can we can actually keep up with first year. But I am definitely, definitely going to be continuing this passion that I have and hopefully continue to make a difference. Okay. Well, don't forget to unpack your suitcases once you get here before you start running out the door. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, you're going to be bringing us stories of youth climate action over the next few months. We'll be hearing from you fairly regularly. I'm wondering what kinds of stories have you most excited? I think... The stories that make me the most excited are the stories that are often not told in mainstream media, right? I have friends who live in rural communities who have stories of climate action. And it's very different. It's so different from those who live in metropolitan cities or even larger towns like myself. And I also want to highlight the stories of those on the front lines because I think those are the people who are living the truest consequences of the climate crisis. And also the stories that make me really excited are the people who wish to be storytellers. I think storytelling is just an art that whoever made this universe has given us or that humans have created for themselves. And since the beginning of time, it is storytelling that has driven us, right? Um, And that's what we're doing right now as well. And so to interview other storytellers and, and the work that they do for our planet... Um, whether it be through art, whether it be through maybe making podcasts, whether it be through videos, 
songs, dances, I think that is such a beauty in itself. Um, And it's what grounds us back to remembering why we're fighting for the work that we're fighting for. Well put. You know, I got to bring us back, though, to this what's right in front of us. It's been a devastating start to the wildfire season. It's impossible Mm -hmm. to ignore because of all the smoke. What difference do you see young people making in the face of that? I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it. This feels like I told you so moment, you know? Right. It really, really does. Because for years, young people, I've been in the climate movement for how many years now? Almost four years, which is crazy to me. But I'm thinking about all the people who've been involved in this movement for 10 years, 15, 20, right? They have been on the streets. They have been in those rooms where decisions are being made, where policies are being made, demanding for stronger commitments, but also requesting and asking that this country and this nation sticks to those commitments, because that's the problem that Canada has. And that's the problem that I think every single government has, but especially our country, because we can't be going up on international stages saying, oh my gosh, we're a leader in solving this crisis of climate change, when no, we're not. No, we are not. (laughs) Um, So it it does, it does. Again, it feels like a told-you-so moment. This is what we were scared of, and now it's here. So for us, it's like, (sighs) what do we do now, right? And we know what we're going to do. We know that we're going to continue fighting. We know that we're going to continue speaking up and continue asking, demanding, and showing what can be done. Because it's not just that we go up to these politicians and ask them for more change. No, we show them by creating workshops, by creating curriculums that we give out. There are so many talented inventors who are making more renewable energy projects who have those ideas out there, but it's about listening to those ideas. It's about implementing those changes that are very much available for, especially for a country like Canada. So yeah, young people out there, if you're listening, take care of yourself. Keep fighting the good fight because we need more people like you. Aishwarya, we're so lucky to have you come on with us and talk to us about things from a young person's perspective. Um, I'm looking forward to meeting you in person here in Vancouver, but for now I'll just say Aishwarya Batur, congratulations on graduation, congratulations and happy birthday. I hope uh, the next days and weeks are great for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll catch you on the next show. And we will be hearing more from Aishwarya in the coming months. In the meantime, If you're involved in the youth climate movement, Aishwarya wants to hear from you and what you're working on. You can find her at AISH.smiles. That's Aish Smiles on Instagram. Or you can email us, earth at cbc.ca, and we will pass your message along. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts.
You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, we hear about new opportunities for people working in oil and gas to retrain for green jobs while still making a living. So I just want to share something with you, especially out of that last chat I was having with Aishwarya and what young people are doing. It's an email that came from listener Lisa Hanning. She wrote to us after she heard a story we did last week about another young climate activist. And and here's just a part of it. It is up to all of us, especially the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, because this mess happened on our watch when we knew, if we cared to look up, what was coming down the pipe. And yes, some of us were on the front lines of activism in our 20s. Others were just not. We all have to stand up and activate, create, resist, decolonize, defund, desist, assist as much as humanely possible in this precarious yet still hopeful time. It is not too late, but if we wait for the middle schoolers to come of age to fix things, well, it just might be. Thanks for that email, Lisa. And then we got a voice memo about that interview with 11-year-old Emily Jensen. Hi, Laura. I loved your Emily story today and the eco-friendly homes in Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario, etc. Great job. Keep up the good work. Take care. God bless. And it is so nice to hear from you. Uh, We'd like to hear more of your voices on the show. So just look for that voice memo app on your phone, hit record, and then share it with us via email. The email again is earth at cbc.ca. We've been talking today about the wildfires that threaten so many communities, and they're becoming both more likely and more intense in Canada because of climate change caused by our greenhouse gas emissions. So how do you prepare when it hits close to home? Emergency managers say you can get ready early with a go bag. But what goes into a go bag? What on Earth producer Molly Siegel decided to find out. When the wildfire started in Tantallon, Nova Scotia, Debbie Shea was evacuated from her home, only then to be told to leave again from her sister's place when yet another evacuation order came into effect. When it happens to you at the spur of the moment, you're not prepared, you're in shock, uh, it's disbelief. I think my advice would be to people uh, that never experienced this to always have an emergency bag on hand. It's good advice not to wait until the last minute. But even if you plan early, how do you know what to put in your bag? So my name is uh, David Fraser. I've been a volunteer with the Ottawa branch of the Canadian Red Cross for uh, about 16 years now. He has experience responding to many emergencies, including natural hazards. So with his guidance, I'm going to give this a go. To start my go kit, I'm going to use this container. There are some things David says everyone should consider. A portable radio with extra batteries. Or a crank-powered radio to stay in touch with the latest emergency information. I don't have one at home, so I head out. Hi. Do you sell, like, radios, like battery radios? No. No, I don't think so. Okay. But online, no problem. Battery radio or crank radio, I mean, I'm seeing stuff from about $20 all the way up to, you know, 50 plus. So there's a big range. Um, My experience, though, is that most people will have most of the things that they need in their home. 
I'll start with an easy one. Copies of your important documents and taking pictures of it and having it on your cell phone. Okay, so personal documents should be backed up. David also suggests keeping copies in your go bag and even giving another set of copies to an emergency contact. Now, back to what he has in his go bag. It has a flashlight. Okay, I have an extra headlamp. That will go in the go kit. I just need to check the batteries. David says one of the most important things about packing your go bag is making it personal. I'm going to add some Tylenol. If you take prescription medication, have some in your bag. Extra clothes are also important. For Michelle Feist, living through an evacuation changed the way she thinks about what to bring. She was evacuated from her home in Lytton, B.C. in 2021 due to wildfire. Here she is speaking with the University of Victoria's Climate Disaster Project. I packed my husband's memorial album, a couple of statues that are one of a kind, and then I packed a bag, and this is a pro tip, pack good stuff. I packed the worst. I packed the ugliest bra, two pairs of old beat-up underwear, and pants that didn't really fit because I thought, I'm not going to use these. So anyhow, that's what I ended up evacuated with. And now I know, pack the good stuff. Okay, noted. I will pack clothing that I actually want to wear. David Fraser also has some more tips from his own go bag. Duct tape is amazing. It can be used in many, many situations. Roll of duct tape, check. And? It has a roll of toilet paper because I don't know where I'm necessarily going to end up. There's extra Kleenex that's in there. A couple of energy bars that, uh, that I carry with me and one uh, bottle of water. Water bottle, check. But don't forget to switch that out every six months or so. And an emergency blanket. It's just shiny and reflects your heat back onto yourself so you can stay warm. Just gonna add that into the kit. Earplugs, because if you are in a reception center, um, it can get quite noisy. Blackout uh, eye shades for, uh, for sleeping as well. Personally, in my grab-and-go kit, I've got games, I've got a deck of cards, I've got a book I haven't read. Okay, cards packed in my go bag. If you have young kids, adding some other games or toys is also a good idea. If you have a pet, make sure you pack their essentials too. If you can't find everything you need at home and you're on a limited budget... The dollar store has most of the items at a very low cost. And if the time comes, all that planning should make things a little easier to manage. Then it's time for action. Pick it up and I get out. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. Thanks for that, Molly. There's a lot of good advice in there. I was listening closely. I do have some of those things packed in my hiking backpack, so I'm part of the way there. Um, But a lot of things I don't have. I do have a hand crank radio, though. I'm I'm thinking those are pretty hard to find, so it might be a bit of a collector's item. But it's just such a good idea. It can help put your mind at ease to know that everything is there, especially the documents, which you'd never really think about. But as you go, you're going to need them. Uh, as things calm down and you have to deal with the rest of your life. So great advice, Molly. Thank you again. Now, you heard Molly mention the Climate Disaster Project at the University of Victoria, and we're going to hear more about that next. The project shares the experiences of people who have lived through things like wildfires, and the people behind it say talking about it helps survivors and their communities to resolve their feelings of trauma. 
Aldwin Chuelos and Tosh Shurkat got involved through their writing class at the University of Victoria. Hello. Hi, Laura. Hi. How's it going? Good. It's going well. Alden, let's start with you. What exactly is the Climate Disaster Project? It is a international teaching newsroom that's training student journalists in trauma-informed interviewing skills to work with survivors of climate disasters, be it wildfires, be it floods, be it heat domes, to share their stories in their own words. And I know you have a website where many of the interviews are available, and you've shared some of that tape with us from some of the interviews that you did for the project. Tosh, one of yours was with a woman named Suzanne kilroy Hukalak. Tell me about her. Suzanne is a really powerful Okanagan woman who has been living between Merritt and Vancouver for quite a while. Um, she does incredible community work and mutual aid, and she was impacted by the Merritt fires where she was in Merritt and visiting her family when the fire that destroyed Lytton also threatened to drop into the Merritt Valley. I, I really want to reiterate just how incredibly powerful she was, and she also felt that she had a responsibility to take care of others who experienced that as well. All right, let, let's have a listen to this. Again, this is Suzanne Kilroy-Hucklock. She grew up in the Thompson Okanagan First Nation. We'll listen to a clip from the interview. This is Suzanne describing what it was like in Merritt in the summer of 2021 as a wildfire was approaching. Flames everywhere, lots of red sky, just people with masks on and black hair, black skin all over from people trying to fight fires, even just from the dust and the smoke in the air, even our skin was all black. And um, they're trying to conserve water because they don't know if we're going to need it right away, so you don't want to use too much water, and you're just washing your hands and face. And the people just running around and trying to bring things together, what's needed from house to house. Who's running out of this? What's running out of that? Power's going off, and power's going off, and people have, most Indians have three, four freezers full of deer, moose, and salmon. And all that meat's gone. Everybody's hungry. So Suzanne got out of merit safely, but you, you can hear in her voice how much it affected her. Tosh, what did she tell you about what it was like for her to tell you that story? I think that it was really hard for Suzanne to tell that story. There was a lot of trauma involved in those times for her. She expressed that much of her family lost many of their belongings and, and properties and ranches during that fire and that they were left to start over with very little support. She was hospitalized briefly after this event as well. And so, yeah, it was it was um, a very emotional interview. But I know that afterwards, talking to Suzanne, she was very happy with the story and excited that she could tell it and that it was told in that way with her own voice. Right. And that brings us back to this idea of a trauma-informed approach to doing this. Alden, you say you were all taught how to do this. Tell us what that means. To start in the class, we would run through everything that we would practice with a survivor with each other, which is doing a pre-interview. So walking through what questions we'd like to ask and allowing people to say no to questions, add questions, change them, um, which gives it gives survivors control over the interview process, which we know when it comes to trauma. Trauma is so, so much about loss of control and then therefore also re-giving survivors 
control. And so that's what we really try to do in lots of this practice, as well as being really trying to take care in our interviewing, um, allowing them to stop. And then we give survivors full access to uh, remove anything they don't actually want shared publicly, to change anything that's incorrect, or to add things they might have missed. And so that's these are the kind of the skills we were taught, as well as a big foundation. A lot of this project is founded on empathy. And so we're all really taught how to um, engage in empathetic interviewing. And did it teach you to have more empathy than you already had? I think it taught me how to harness skills. I think I've always had. I think one of the biggest things that I learned was to be bold in my empathy. And I think that this course is really giving a lot of students the power to do that. I think vulnerability and empathy can be incredibly scary things to practice. Um, And so I think this I think that a lot of what they're teaching us is just giving us the courage to do that. I'm curious about that expression, be bold in your empathy. What does that mean? I think that a lot of what we would have to practice is just showing that you're hearing what someone is saying and showing that what they're saying is incredibly hard. I think sometimes when someone's sharing something horrific with you or traumatic or extremely emotional, we have a tendency to sort of shrink back, be it whether we're uncomfortable, be it we don't want to take up space, be it we feel like we can't quite relate. And so I think it's like instead saying that, like, I hear you, I see you, whether I can't fully understand, I can understand with pieces of that. And I think that really helped in building the relationships that I've gotten to build through these interviews and just really being bold and saying, I'm here to listen. Okay. And and, and as I mentioned before, the people whose stories that we're hearing today did give permission to share them with us. I'm, I'm wondering, Tosh, why is this approach important to you? There's a large effort to transform the interview process to something that's sort of beyond the purpose of story. We're not always interviewing someone who just survived a fire, right? Oftentimes, or every time, actually, we're thinking about who is this person How can we get to know them and develop a relationship with them in order for them to feel comfortable to tell this story in a way that both humanizes them and platforms their solutions and their hopes and desires? And I think that that for me is important because it goes sort of beyond maybe a journalistic practice that is engaged with extracting information from somebody or leaving them in a place of trauma within the writing. And... um, For me, that was really important in in telling Suzanne's story because there is so much trauma in what she experienced in those very short weeks, but the power in what she had to say about the things that she hoped for the future and, and the ways in which she helped others and the ways in which others helped her, I think that that was something that we wouldn't have heard if we went in with a more traditional approach. Interesting. Alden, and you did a few interviews for this project. One was with a woman named Michelle Feist. And tell me about her. Who is she? Yeah, so Michelle Feist um, was a resident of Lytton. She's a retired nurse, um, and she had been over the years fixing up this yellow house in Lytton. And unfortunately, it was it was destroyed in the Lytton fire. And as a result, she has relocated to Williams Lake, where she's now fixing up a new yellow house. So I got the privilege to interview her about a year ago. And it was just it was one of my one of my early interviews with the project. And it was, I think, a really foundational experience for me. Okay, let's listen to a bit of that interview. Michelle 
in it is describing the moments before the wildfire destroyed Lytton in June of 2021. And just a note for listeners, there's some background noise in the clip, and it is actually the sound of the contractors who are fixing up the kitchen in Michelle's new house in Williams Lake. Let's have a listen. Within 15, 20 minutes, people were banging on doors and there was a collective movement. Um, I picked up my neighbor who had been sleeping in her house across the way. She's an older lady, also a widow. We kind of kept an eye on one another. What I saw was people going up and down the street, banging on doors and making sure that everyone was accounted for within the chaos and the panic of the fire, which was encroaching. There were embers falling on my head. Um, People's backyards were on fire because of the way the fire went. But there was a real sense of the community moving as a whole. What what did Michelle say about, about the impact it had on her to talk through what happened with you? She said it was really helpful um, and actually really healing to talk through her story and, and to kind of have the space to really talk through it, all of it. We really try to give survivors space to tell their complete story from start to finish because we know from like trauma theory that's really important. Then I think it's that act of getting to share the entire thing in one place can be incredibly helpful. What is the project aiming to do by sharing these stories? I mean, part of why we, we really focus on the, the personal narratives and telling one person's story completion is to really create that connection between a reader and this story so that it is happening to someone and it's happening to someone near us and it's happening to someone now because so much of climate coverage can sometimes make climate change feel like this faraway thing that's happening in the future. And it also, it comes back to that idea of really trying to to create that empathy, to build that connection. And so much of this is about building communities around this idea of climate change. Well, with that in mind, let, let's listen to another uh, piece of tape from Michelle. My friend, Michelle up the way, she's got the same name as me. <laughs> she's, you know, she saved Peggy because, because Peggy's in her 80s and Peggy is one of these ultra efficient people and kept running back into her house. And so she kind of grabbed her, you know, old ladies, it can be quite formidable and said, get in your car and drive. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so were these little actions going on all over the place. We've compared notes and how, that is why more people didn't die. There was a sense of cohesion and every single person that could helped someone. So there were so many really wonderful acts that day, selfless acts. So Alden, how have stories like hers affected your view of what the future might hold? Yeah, it's definitely, I think it's really shown the power that communities have. I mean, Michelle is just one of a number of stories that we've heard of communities really stepping up. And I think it's just shown how when we can come together, like there is a lot we can do. And um, I think it's just highlighted that we do have the power as we move through these disasters and as we move through an era of disaster to create new ways of living, to create new communities and, and build and sustain existing ones that will allow us to live in a more equitable way and just be able to survive climate change together. So, Tosh, how how has working on on this project changed the way you think about climate change? Mm. I think it's changed the way that I feel about the future. Um, That might be a very succinct answer for me, (laughs) but uh, I think it's very easy if you are 
born into the generation that we were born in to feel very nihilistic about the future. But I think it has renewed a sense of commitment in me to joining and developing and building community strength and resilience in a meaningful way and making sure that I take care of the people around me and that the people around me take care of me and that that system grows and grows. Sounds like this has had a pretty big impact on both of you. And I I know that you talked about the privilege of being able to talk to these people. That's a good way to put it. Um, Alden Chuelos, Tosh Shirkat, thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much, Laura. And you can learn more about the Climate Disaster Project and read the stories gathered by Tosh and Alden and their classmates on the website climatedisasterproject.com. The federal government has long promised to help Canadians working in oil and gas switch to careers in renewables and other green jobs. What Ottawa once called just transition is now labeled sustainable jobs and years have passed with no details on what the promise entails. But just days ago, a nonprofit group dedicated to supporting fossil fuel workers to make the switch announced it's getting a $16 million boost from the federal government. Luisa De Silva is the executive director of Iron and Earth. We have so many workers here in Canada that have the skills that are needed in the net zero economy. They simply don't know what jobs are available to them or how their skills translate. So a big chunk of this funding is to address that. Iron and Earth has worked in communities across the country since 2016, building renewable projects and providing free hands-on training. For example, a solar project that will power a remote community in Anatsiavut in Newfoundland and Labrador. The new funding will help pay for more than 2,000 people to take Iron and Earth programs, including job training and paid placements with employers across the country. It's a shift Louisa herself is familiar with after leaving her own work in the oil and gas and mining sectors behind. Yeah, I, I made the transition myself too because as much as I enjoyed the experiences that I was having, I didn't see what I was hoping to see as my future. And so I started to make a transition away from the industry, but it took a long time. It took several years. And part of what drives me and what I'm so passionate about is kind of shortening that time down. That means getting workers into green jobs more quickly. It's not even just about increasing the numbers. It's now making something available to people that otherwise would have been left out of the conversation and those would have never been an option for them. And those are the people that we're really trying to reach with this funding. This new injection of cash also means that workers will be paid a wage subsidy. But Louisa says her group also wants to make sure it helps in other key ways. So things like childcare, things like transportation, If you're coming from really far because you live in a community that is so remote that these opportunities don't come to you, you can come to the opportunity and we'll give you some temporary accommodation to be able to do that week's worth of training. We're trying to remove as many barriers as we can so that people can participate, so that they can then go ahead and forge for themselves a resilient and prosperous future in the net zero economy. It is really urgent that this happens, that we need to move towards renewables. There are climate targets that need to be met, 
And these are not just ambiguous climate targets. These are real. The world is heating up. We saw Lytton, BC go up in flames, and I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. I think what we're seeing in much of Canada this year with smoke uh, extending everywhere is also catching people off guard. And in Toronto, where Louisa is based, it's not something people are used to seeing. These kinds of things happening, I think it makes people kind of stand up and look around and say, wait a second, hmm, what's driving all this? <laughs> what's causing all this? And I think it's it's good that people start seeing that because it starts getting that conversation going and we can then take action. And the action, for me, it's a no-brainer. And the answer for Louisa is building renewable projects that collaborate closely with communities and empowering workers to be part of that transition. It just all makes sense. It's what Canada needs. It's what our economy needs. And it's what our children and our grandchildren and the next generations before them need. And we have time now for a few other climate stories in the news this week. Of course, the wildfire smoke has dominated a lot of news coverage. Its unwelcome appearance came as Canada marked Clean Air Day. A group of doctors chose the day, June the 7th, to press Ottawa to ban advertising of fossil fuel products and services. They created an electronic petition demanding the ban in order to protect public health. It's no surprise to people living with unusually warm June weather. It's no surprise to people who are living with the unusually early arrival of destructive wildfire. But now, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States has declared the arrival of the weather pattern known as El Nino. According to NOAA, it's likely to lead to more extreme weather later this year, including cyclones and drought. El Nino is typically generated by unusually warm water in the eastern Pacific, and it brings generally warmer temperatures. It's expected to persist into 2024. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Coming up on next week's show, we're marking National Indigenous Peoples Day by talking to three generations of one family fighting for the climate. A grandmother, her daughter and her grandson, whose work in renewables has taken him around the world, And that work has become all the more crucial as wildfire touches their home territory. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. We love to read them and tell your friends, too. And that is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Zoe Yunker, Missy Johnson, and Danielle Piper. Producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. And thanks this week to Kate Bickert. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.